You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 12. I'll be reading first in Korean and second in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. On this day, when we remember the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, we glimpse into eternity where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around this throne worshiping him together. 나 전두전은 예루살렘에서 이스라엘의 왕이 되어 마음을 다하며 지혜를 써서 하늘 아래서 행하는 모든 일을 궁구하며 살핀 즉이는 괴로운 것이니 하나님이 인생들에게 주사 수고하게 하신 것이라 내가 해 아래서 행하는 모든 일을 본즉 다 헛되어 바람을 잡으려는 것이로다 구부러진 것을 곱게 할수 없고 이지러진 것을 셀수 없도다 내가 마음 가운데 말하여 이르기를 내가 큰 지혜를 많이 얻었으므로 나보다 먼저 예루살렘에서 있던 자보다 낫다 하였나니 곧내 마음이 지혜와 지식을 많이 만나 보았음이로다 내가 다시 지혜를 알고자 하며 미친 것과 미련한 것을 알고자 하여 마음을 썼으나 이것도 바람을 잡으려는 것인 줄을 깨달았도다. 지혜가 많으면 번뇌도 많으니 지식을 더하는 자는 근심을 더하느니라. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much fixation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. What you are searching for, whatever that is, cannot be found under the sun. Ecclesiastes is going to go to great lengths to show us what life is like when lived strictly under the sun. In fact, the focus of this book is summed up in this verse that was just read in verse 13. All that is done under heaven. What is the book of Ecclesiastes about? It really is an exploration of life under heaven. As one theologian explained it, imagine if you took a piece of paper that represented all of existence, the world, human history, your life, and then you took that piece of paper and you tore off the heavens, the spiritual. What you are left with, the severed piece, is what Ecclesiastes refers to as life under the sun, the fragment of life that has been disconnected, a fragment of what life ought to be, separated from the meaning and hope that comes to us from 
beyond the sun. And the preacher is exploring all of the various ways that we try to discover meaning and significance under heaven in that small, severed sphere. I've shared this illustration before, but I'm reminded of a story of a 17th century painting by an artist named El Greco. The painting is actually today in the Met in New York, and it's called The Vision of St. John, and it depicts the martyrs and the Apostle John reaching upwards. They are vulnerable, they are needy, they are exposed. And what is interesting about this painting that you couldn't tell from just looking at this art piece today is that there's an entire portion of the painting that is missing. What is left on display today in the 21st century is actually just a small fragment from a larger altarpiece that was commissioned by the church in the 17th century. And the missing portion is believed to be a scene out of the book of Revelation where Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, breaks the fifth seal and distributes these white robes to the martyrs in need. They are receiving it. The life of heaven in this painting is breaking into life on earth. And according to history, uh, almost five feet of this painting was removed during the Enlightenment period when society made this extremely intentional effort to remove God from culture and the arts. And they thought that the upper portion depicting heaven and Christ and the life of eternity was no longer relevant today. We don't need that stuff. But what is ironic about this move is that it's actually far, now far more relevant than they could have ever imagined. And what this, this art piece now illustrates that even when heaven is out of view, even when heaven, as if it's possible, has been separated from humanity, even when life is lived as strictly under the sun, people will continue to reach. People will continue to search for meaning. People will continue to grasp for transcendence, something beyond themselves. An author named Tara Isabella Burton in her uh, recent book called Strange Rights, she explores the fastest uh, growing religious demographic in America called the nuns. And it's not N-U-N-S, it's N-O-N-E-S which makes up 30% of Americans, by the way, and it's those who have no religious affiliation, no religious identity in America, 30% of Americans. Now, while this group does include atheists, the surprising thing is that the percentage of atheists in America is still extremely small. You probably know very few, if any, true atheists. What this group of nuns does include is groups called agnostics and more specifically people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. You'll hear that all the time. I'm spiritual, I'm just not really religious. Ever heard that before? 30% of people are going to say that when they respond to your questions. Those who mix and match certain aspects of various religions, they dabble in Eastern practices or mindfulness or meditation or they, you know, they like the teachings of Jesus and they sort of incorporate them into a strange religious mix. And what she said in this book was this, that people hunger for the same things human beings have always longed for, a sense of meaning in the world and personal purpose within that meaning, a community to share that experience with 
and rituals that bring the power of that experience into everyday life. And what she goes on to describe is that the typical human experience is this. She said it's a quest for knowing, for belonging, and for meaning. And I love how she puts it. The pilgrimage none can get out of. The search that you simply cannot avoid or escape, no matter how hard you try. Thousands of years before the rise of the nuns, thousands of years before our current religious climate in the West, today, the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes welcomed his readers to consider the quest for meaning that has proven to be a timeless approach. Here we are 2,500 plus years later still discussing it. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage under three headings. The first is this, searching. Look with me again in verses 12 through 13. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. As I mentioned last week, who we are to envision in our mind is a Solomon like king and figure. It could be Solomon. It could be someone as wise and powerful like Solomon. But he says, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Unhappy business. So if we retrace our steps all the way back to our biblical origins in the book of Genesis in the garden, what we see is that life began as full and flourishing. Life was unhindered. God and his people were united in love and trusts, uh, trust. Questions like, what is the meaning of life didn't exist because it just was happening. Could you imagine Adam coming to Eve and being like, what do you think the meaning of life is? She'd be like, that's a weird question. It's this. It's everything that you have. God invited Adam and Eve to live their lives full of purpose and authority to enjoy all that he had made. What God said was, what is mine is yours. Live it up. And yet they believed the lie that God was still somehow holding out on them. And what they needed was to search or to reach for more. As Martin Luther described it, the sin beneath all of our sins is to believe the lie of the serpent that we cannot rely upon the love and grace of Christ and that we need to take matters into our own hands. That we need to look elsewhere. It's to look to, for life and meaning and joy in anything or anyone other than God. Sin urges us to search elsewhere. And what the Bible describes is an idol, it's wherever we land. Sin is to search elsewhere. An idol is what we grasp onto. And there are a lot of ways that we search. And there are a lot of places that we land, a lot of things that we cling to. But the result is always going to be the same. The result is always going to be disappointment and frustration. As C.S. Lewis put it, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. 
a long, sad saga of searching elsewhere. So after the preacher's long, meticulous search that he describes here, applying all the methods that human wisdom could offer and all of the resources that would be available to the king, he had everything at his disposal in order to find the meaning of life. And after exploring all of these various paths under the sun, he came to the same conclusion again and again and again and again. It is all unhappy business. Things don't bring happiness the way that we are convinced they will. It just doesn't happen. Why? Why is that? And to put it into sort of crude terms, it happens because the system is rigged that way. It all leads to frustration and disappointment because the system is rigged that way. He says it is unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. It's because God set it up this way. Now, he still has, uh, you know, like this theological foundation that is supporting his journey under the sun. He explores life. He's asking really hard questions. He's struggling with all of life's inconsistencies, but he is doing so from a firm theological grounding that God is still and always will be sovereign. God is still, this doesn't make sense, man. Life is weird. But God is sovereign. When life doesn't make sense at all, when it all seems to be completely senseless, what we can know in our heart of hearts is that there is still divine order at work. I don't see it, but I know that there's divine order at work. And what we're to conclude from this is that God has established life to be meaningful, to be satisfying, to be joyful when it's lived in communion with him. And therefore, God has established life to be empty and restless and unhappy apart from him. And what I've found, people in the 21st century that think that they can sort of straddle the line, life is even more miserable when you're trying to do both. Michelle and I were watching a show, I won't tell you which show, um, about these wealthy, successful, successful uh, people. And in one scene, they're living it up, they're like popping champagne. Even one of the people says, I'm living my best life. How about that line? I'm living my best life. And then moments later, just like a few scenes later, there's tears and brokenness and fighting and they're depressed. It's unhappy business under the sun. Now, the, the teacher is not saying that life is void of enjoyment. The teacher is not saying that nothing matters in life. What he is getting us to see is that life under the sun is fleeting. It's heavy. It's mist. It's here and then gone. The joy and pleasure that we get from created things are going to be temporary at best. They can't last. 
And what they'll do is they'll keep us searching for more, always wanting, always wanting, always wanting, never satisfied, searching. Now, the second thing that we see here, if you're taking notes, is striving. Look at me again in verses 14 through 15. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. I saw it all, man. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, a couple questions to consider. Why do you think that millennials are referred to as the tired generation? I identify with this generation group. Why is it that we are called the tired generation? And why is it that Gen Z, my children's generation, is referred to as the depressed generation? Now, there are no simple answers to these questions. In fact, I think Ecclesiastes would urge us to not assign pat answers. Don't do that, the preacher would say. It's not that simple. Life is too elusive for you to have just bulletproof answers to these questions. It doesn't work that way. But if we're only looking for psychological or if we're only looking for physiological or if we're only looking for sociological answers to these questions, if we are simply only looking to the horizontal plane or looking within, then we're going to always keep on coming up short and we're going to continue to fail to help the people that are suffering under this strain. What Ecclesiastes is urging us to recognize is that these experiences are also deeply spiritual in nature. What he is showing us, what the Bible is showing us, is that we are weary and we are exhausted and we are overwhelmed because we are spending our lives chasing after wind. You're chasing wind. Striving and grasping for answers to life and meaning in people or things or opportunities that will never provide them. Now, as Christians, we do this too. Don't think that this is like a world problem. It's what the people out there are doing. We as Christians do this too. We just find more acceptable things, like chasing the wind in our marriage, or chasing the wind in our parenting, or chasing the wind in our careers, or chasing the wind in our hobbies, or chasing the wind in health and fitness, or in creating art, and in Lord help us, in our politics or chasing the wind in noble things like social, social justice or even our own religious performance. All sorts of things to grasp for, to give our life's meaning. So at the end of the day, we can say, because of this, I matter. So that at the end of our lives, we don't feel like we came up empty-handed. So that we can finally say, this is what I was made for. Church, we need to begin to scrutinize our behaviors. We need to begin to scrutinize our patterns and our obsessions. To honestly assess 
where we are spending our time and how we are spending our money and where we allow our minds to go and what controls us, what we're obsessed with, what we are chasing after in our lives. We need to get honest about the ways that we are grasping at wind, even in religious and socially acceptable things. The preacher would say, it's Hevel. Now, this doesn't mean that all things under the sun themselves are meaningless, as I mentioned earlier. It means that they will never be what you're expecting them to be. And looking to these things to give us meaning, to make our lives matter, what he's saying is, is as pointless as chasing after the wind. It will always escape your grasp, it will never add up, and it will only wear you out in the process. Not only do you not gain anything, but you're just exhausted at the end of that race. St. Augustine once said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. They're weary until they're home in you. Let's look finally at sorrow. Verses 16 through 18. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases what? Sorrow. So the teacher's method to explore and discover meaning under the sun was wisdom. Again, this is like a Solomon-like king and figure. He utilizes observation and reason and experience. He's kind of like a 21st century thinker. He uses intellect and he used his knowledge to explore every corner of human existence, everything from the greatest minds to those who are totally mad, from the scholarly articles to the trivial tabloids at the supermarket, and everything between. I studied every aspect of human existence. And he says the more insights he gained, the more sorrowful he became. Isn't that so true? The more we see the more sad we get. Why is that? Well, as T.S. Eliot once put it, all our knowledge just brings us nearer to our own ignorance. Why, Why does wisdom bring sorrow? Because the more we learn, the more we realize how little we actually know. I used to get my grandmother these huge puzzles for Christmas, like ornate, super small pieced puzzles every Christmas. And then one year, my, my, my grandma's pretty blunt and bold. She just told me, stop getting me puzzles. <laughs> stop it. And it's not because, or at least I would like to think, it's not because she doesn't appreciate it. It's because they were frustrating her. She told me, they're, they're frustrating. <laughs> I don't want to do your stupid puzzles. They're frustrating me. Now imagine the most complex puzzle 
ever. And trying to assemble this puzzle, but this time, there's no cover photo. Someone like dumps the pieces, 2,500 pieces, just dumps it on this big table, and then walks away with the box. And you have no idea what it's supposed to look like. Is this gonna be puppies? Is this like another Thomas Kincaid? Is this a real picture of a beach? Is it a painting? What is it, Christmas ornaments? What is this thing? Imagine what you'd be feeling when you're trying to assemble this puzzle, how frustrating it would be, how overwhelming. Like, where do I even start? You start to work on the corners, you're like, I don't, I don't even know how many, how, how wide is this side gonna be? How long am I going here? And then imagine someone coming to you and saying, by the way, you will never know the meaning of life until you assemble, successfully assemble this puzzle. What you find when it's all assembled is going to show you why you exist. And by the way, the clock is ticking. <laughs> life under the sun. The teacher says, the more I tried to assemble the pieces of life, using what was available to me within the realm of human wisdom, the more frustrated and the more sad I became. And then that's it. That's it. There's the end. In fact, the, the last word he leads us, leaves us on is sorrow. The end of this path called wisdom, it's sad. Again, what is the teacher doing? He's leading us down these various paths that he'll explore over the next 11 chapters, and he's taking us all the way down to the logical end of each path to show us that things under the sun are simply incapable of providing the answers that we're all seeking. But why does he do this? It's not so that we, like him, are left depressed. He's actually trying to spare us this sorrow. What he's doing is he's subtly trying to get us to lift our eyes higher so that we are compelled to seek life and meaning beyond the sun beyond what life can provide us. Today, if you are tired, if you are weary, if you're overwhelmed, if you're frustrated, if you feel fed up, if you're confused, you are not alone, by the way. You're in good company. And you may actually be in the very place where you are now ready to receive the life and meaning that you've always been looking for. To receive the life and meaning that you were created to experience to experience what you couldn't have otherwise experienced unless you had reached that end. Life and meaning that comes to us from beyond the heavens. See, where Ecclesiastes just shows us the dead end and then just leaves us there to ponder, the New Testament book of Ephesians shows us the way of Jesus. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, despite being, you know, the painting of our lives being cut off, despite being severed from life beyond the sun, Jesus bridged the gap in order to usher in the life of heaven. Jesus entered into the futility, the hevel 
to bring with him all of God's fullness. Life is a vapor, but Christ entered into it. Life is a shadow, but the substance of Christ entered. And Ephesians goes on to say in verses 7 through 10, in him speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, listen to this, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What has been severed, what has been cut away through our sin in our lives and in our world is mended and is reunited through Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that in him and through faith in him, we are now greeted with a full and complete existence. Life from beyond the sun has now been lavished, poured upon our lives. To trust in Jesus is to be welcomed into his unfolding story of eternity with greater meaning and greater purpose than anything that we could ever imagine achieving in one lifetime. So that we are no longer defined by the futility of life under the sun, but now through faith defined by Jesus and the infinite beauty and worth that is found in him. And Paul goes on and finally to say this in verses 13 through 14. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and listen, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As Angie mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday, and it's the day that we celebrate the gift, the giving of the Holy Spirit falling upon the church, God's grace from heaven being lavished upon his people in the person of the Holy Spirit who is forever present and who is forever pouring into us the unending life of heaven. Right now, as we sit under God's spoken word, God is pouring his grace into our lives through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. Right now, as we are in his presence with God's people, he is ministering his vastness into our lives and filling us with his fullness. The Holy Spirit is how it all breaks through. The Holy Spirit is how the life of heaven breaks into our lives. And so today, instead of filling our lives with more experiences, a little more of this, a little more of that, add a little meaning, seek a little life here, the Bible gives us a completely different route. The Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in the original language, be being filled. Be filled in an ongoing, never-ending way with the Spirit of God. Life isn't made complete through striving. Life is made complete through receiving. As we are filled with the Spirit of God, relying upon Him, trusting in Him, communing in Him through prayer, our experience is forever changed. 
And in him, in the Holy Spirit, the search is over. The striving ceases. And the sorrow is turned to hope. Be filled with the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...